All right, well, good morning, folks. It's good to be with you today. I'm Jason Lyle out of the Biblical Science Institute, and I get to talk to you about how did we get the Bible. And that's a fun topic, I think. It's very interesting because God has given us his certain word, and that's amazing, and it's a privilege, and it's something we shouldn't take for granted, but we often do. It's helpful for Christians to know a little bit about how we got this amazing book because a lot of people have the impression that God wrote it up in heaven and it kind of floated into our bookstore and that's not quite how we got it. But um, the way God did it is amazing and it's superior to the way that many people think that God did it and it's superior to the way that many people wish that God had done it because people have misconceptions about this. So it's good to know something about this because of the claims the critics make. We need to be able to answer these. Critics will make claims such as the Bible has been translated so many times that it probably isn't reliable at all. And I have to wonder if they really understand what they're saying because how many times has the Bible been translated? How many times has this Bible been translated? I have an NAS. It's been translated once from the Hebrew and Greek into English. I think some critics have the misconception that the Bible was translated into one language, into another, into another, into another, and then finally we got, no. Uh, perhaps they mean it's been transmitted many times, and that is true. That what, what I have here is a copy of a copy of a copy and so on, and that is something we're going to have to give some thought to. But the translation isn't, isn't really a problem. We have, we have Hebrew and Greek Bibles even today. We can go back and check and see if they've been well translated, and the answer is they have been. So that's not really an issue. Uh, some critics say, well, the Bible can't be trusted because it was written by men. What book isn't written by men or women, right? <laughs> but the Bible is also inspired by God, and that makes it unique among all the works of literature in the world. So it's kind of funny. They'll say, you know, you know not the Bible. Read this book. But it was written by men, too. I, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> The Bible was probably written by some monk during the Dark Ages. I was in a debate one time, and my opponent said that. And, I, you know, it was all I could do not to say, you haven't spent a half an hour in a library. Because, you know, we have Bibles that are older than that. So, you no, know, that's, that's absurd. But people sometimes will make that claim. It's not defensible. Or there are thousands of variations, so how do you know which one is really the Bible? And the thing about that is, it's true, there are thousands of what we call variants. And we're going to look at some of those today. And it bothers Christians that these exist, but there's a reason they do. And it doesn't diminish our confidence in the Bible. It shouldn't. Because they don't affect any major doctrine anyway. But there's a reason why God allowed those to happen. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. It's always best to see what a book says about itself. And the Bible says that it is inspired by God. Most books come with some kind of foreword or an introduction to the author or something like that. The Bible has that information in it as well. It's contained in it. All scriptures inspired by God are God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we can be pleasing to God if we study the Bible and apply it in our lives. That begins with repentance and trusting in Christ, of course. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what is in this book is not the opinions of men. It is the word of God. God used men to write it. There's no doubt about that. There's one section where he didn't. Exodus 20, for example, where God wrote it with his own finger in stone, the Ten Commandments, for example. But for most of the Bible, God used people to write it. And they were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think it's interesting because they're writing, and yet what they wrote was what God speaks. It's interesting. So it is his word. And that bothers people. How, you know, how did God do that? You, you, can't, you can't write a book using somebody else. You can't. God can because he's God. And if you think about it, God used the personalities and life experiences of the people, that, that, of the 40 or so authors that wrote this book, and, he, and they're incorporated in that. So Paul's writing style is different from Peter's and it's different from Luke's and so on. And, and yet it's all God's word. How did God do that? Well, well, keep in mind that God was the one that created their personalities and guided their lives and their experiences. So that's not a problem for a sovereign God. Well, then aren't all books inspired by God? 
No, because God is affirming only what is written in this book. Okay. So God is sovereign, but he chose 40 or so people to pen what he wanted us all to know, to pen his word. And it is authoritative, therefore. So when did God first reveal himself to man? Well, in the beginning. Because God directly spoke to Adam and Eve. Revelation, that's divine discourse. Revelation is God giving some of his thoughts to us. Him giving some information about himself. And he did that with Adam and Eve. So, and, and I mention that because critics sometimes ask, how did people know about God before the Bible was written? Because there were you know, 2,000 years of history before anybody penned Scripture. That's true. But people have known about God since the very beginning because Adam and Eve, Adam talked with God. And they, they would have passed that information on to their children and their children's children and so on. And, of course, Adam could have directly interacted with his great, 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 grandson because he was very long-lived. So that's not a problem. And at some point that information, some of it was written down for our benefit. So people have had revelation from God from the very beginning. That's never been an, an issue. We have the blessing of a written revelation from God. And that is a tremendous blessing because it can't be changed. A person's memory might fail him at some point unless God helps. But uh, the written word that once it's written down, then it's objective, and you can't go and change that. Now, the earliest books of the Bible, a lot of people assume it's the Pentateuch. We actually think that Job is probably the first book of the Bible to have been written. That's kind of interesting. And, and we think it's around 2000 B.C. So Job would have been, he would have lived at about the same time as Abraham, for example. This is about 350 years after the Great Flood, uh, about 250 years after the Tower of Babel, where the languages were confused. And there are several indications in the book of Job that it was written around this time. One is the great age of Job. He lived 140 years after the events that are recorded in the book of Job, after his trial. And we don't know how old he was, but if everything else was doubled, maybe he was 70 at that time and then 140 afterwards. So he could have been over 200 years old, and that's typical of the ages of people at around the time of Abraham. So that's one indication. Uh, his wealth is described in terms of cattle and things like that, so they were perhaps still on a barter system, which puts, puts it at around that time. And the way he sacrificed, uh, Job offered sacrifices to God, and God accepted them. They were pleasing to God, but he didn't offer them in the way prescribed by the Mosaic Law, because the Mosaic Law had not yet been given. So that tells us he's pre-Moses. Okay, so that, that's, we think it's around 2000 B.C. And how did we get it? Well, um, Moses comes along next, and Moses lived in Midian for about 40 years, and we think that's very close to, if not overlapping with the land where Job lived. And so Moses would have read Job at some point, recognized it as very special and unique, recognized it as inspired by God, and would have preserved that work for the rest of the Israelites for their benefit. And then, of course, um, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the law. Jesus affirms that Moses wrote that in Luke 24, 44. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is Genesis records information that is prior to Moses. And how did he do that? Well, of course, God could have directly given that information to Moses. That wouldn't be a problem. But um, I do think that Moses probably used previous written materials to compile Genesis. He'd still be considered the author by the Hebrew custom. And that is suggested in passages like Genesis 5.1, where you have, this is the book of the generations of Adam. There are ten of these, uh, these are the generations of, or this is the book of the generations of, that are contained in Genesis. And so it looks like Moses had access to older documents that he recognized uh, belonged in God's word and compiled those under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We don't know for sure that that's the case, but it's a possibility. In any case, Jesus affirms Genesis as being inspired by God, and he rose from the dead, so I'm going to take his word for that. You rise from the dead, that gives, that gives me a lot of, or that gives you a lot of credibility in my eyes. So here's the timeline, roughly, of the writing of the Bible. So God had, we did have revelation from God from the very beginning, but then that was passed down by word of mouth, perhaps some of it written, and certainly written by the time of Job. And then the, the other books of the Bible were written in the context of the Israelites, uh, during the, the time in which they existed, so the descendants of Abraham. And up until about 400 B.C., and then inspiration stops. God stopped speaking to the Israelites around that time, the silent years, where they were awaiting the Messiah, 
but no new inspiration was given. No new books of the Bible were penned until the coming of Christ. And then the New Testament was written in a very short period of time, shortly after Christ's earthly ministry. And so the New Testament, that was all finished by the, and it was all written in the first century and in a relatively short period of time in that first century. So there you have the writing of the Bible, the timeline of that. And the New Testament and then the Old Testament as well were freely transmitted after that, after that point, especially the New Testament. So the Old Testament was written primarily in the Hebrew language. Sections of Daniel are written in Aramaic, but most of it's written in Hebrew. And that's what Hebrew looks like today. If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, that's what it'll look like. It looked a little different in, originally, but that's what it looks like today. This is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So that's what it says. Yeah, originally, it would have looked different. Originally, it looked like that. This is sometimes called Proto-Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew. It's the same language. It's just originally their alphabet, they wrote their, their letters differently than they do today. And so the original books of the Bible, this would have been the way Genesis 1-1 looked approximately when it was first written. So it looks quite different than it does today. And then uh, the, all the early books of the Bible were written using that Paleo-Hebrew script. It's still the Hebrew language. It's just the alphabet changed. And that happened around uh, 600 B.C. when the, the northern tribes had already been scattered, but Judah was captured by Babylon. And at that point, they began using the square script because the Babylonians did. That's the, they were using the Aramaic language. And so the Hebrews started, it's still Hebrew, it's just they started using the Aramaic alphabet. And so the letters changed. And those older books of the Bible were updated, not translated, because it's the same language. They just, they just uh, used the new alphabet letters instead of the original. But you can see there's a one-to-one -one correspondence for each letter on the top and each letter on the bottom. Um, it's, the same, it's the same words. It's still, in the beginning, God created them and the earth. So also at some point during that captivity, and by the way, the, the Hebrew language, it's all consonants. The, so the, the vowels, you have to kind of, you kind of have to know what those are. You say, well, how do you figure that out? Well, it takes practice. It takes practice. It's not simple. But if you think about it, if you wanted to remember a phrase, you know, the crow flies at midnight, you could write that down just with consonants, and that would help you. That would be sufficient for you to remember it. So we think a lot of people had memorized a lot of the scriptures, and then the written text helped them to just kind of bring that to mind. In any case, it's all continents, consonants. And then at some point during the captivity, the Hebrews changed the spelling of some of their words by, they thought, well, it would be helpful to know what some of these vowels are. And so they took three of their consonants and started using them as vowels. And they would insert them. And so it's the same word, like you can see it there, bodeshith, that, that little, the, the light blue, that's a yod. That's normally a consonant. But in this case, it's used to indicate that um, it should have the e sound at the end, bodeshith. And uh, so it's giving you a little bit of help as to what the vowels should be. Okay? Not quite enough that, to, to fully replace the vowels, but it's a little bit of help. And it's kind of like um, Y, the letter Y in the English language, which can be used as a consonant or a vowel. It's the same way. So they started doing that. And that's the way the text would have looked at the time of Christ's earthly ministry. That spelling would have been updated, and, and the older books would have been updated at that point as well. So when Jesus read the scriptures, in, if he was reading them in Hebrew, that's what they would look like. So another change happened. With the Masoretes, the Masoretes were a group of Jews that lived after the time of Christ's earthly ministry. So they were, not, they were not Christians, they were Jews, but they were very concerned about preserving uh, the Word of God. And so they, may, they meticulously copied the Old Testament scriptures, and they were very good at it, because uh, we, have, we have many of their copies uh, today. But they thought it would be helpful for people to know how to pronounce these words if you, if you weren't familiar with uh, the Hebrew language. But they didn't want to change the text because that's the word of God. We don't want to change any more spellings or anything like that. So they began adding these little marks above and below the letters to indicate which vowels should be used. And those are indicated in blue, as well as which uh, syllable should be emphasized. And those are indicated in yellow. And other information, too, like whether it's a hard or a soft consonant, things like that. So um, these, are, these cantillation marks were added by the Masoretes. And around 600 to 850 A.D. And my point in saying that is to keep in mind, those are not, those are not inspired by God. Okay? They could be wrong. Now, I, th I think they're mostly right. But my point is, it's the text that's infallible. These were added later. 
So we do have to keep that in mind. So I've heard people try to make um, arguments based on the vowels, and I have to point out those aren't original. So you've got to be careful about that. There were actually three different systems that they were using, and then they finally settled on the Tiberian system, which you see there. And so today, if you pick up a Hebrew Bible, that's what it'll look like. It'll be using the Tiberian uh, uh, vowel pointing system. So, and that's the only way I can read it, is if it has those vowels. People who are very fluent in Hebrew, they don't need those, but I do. So, how do we know that a text has been accurately copied? Because we do not have what are called the autographs. The autograph would be the original papyrus or probably sheepskin that Moses wrote on. We don't have that today. We have a copy of 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 it. It's been copied many times. We know it's been copied accurately because the, the Masoretes certainly, they were very concerned. They were meticulous. They had systems they used of counting the consonants and so on. So that we know that because we find little numbers where they had added them up to make sure that they had the right number. It's very clever. And uh, it, was, it was important to them to uh, maintain God's word. Well, there's a few ways that we know a text has been copied accurately. Uh, older texts tend to be better. That makes sense, right? Because it, would you rather be studying a copy of a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? You, obviously, you want one that's been copied fewer times. And so older texts are better. And so the earliest of the Masoretic text, those that were preserved by the Masoretes, goes back a thousand years. In a thousand and eight, we have the Leningrad Codex, which is the oldest complete manuscript of the um, Old Testament that we have in our possession today that, of the Masoretic variety. And so it'll have the vowel pointings in it. So that's pretty good. That, and we can check that with... Uh, Hebrew manuscripts later on, and they're pretty much identical. So in the last thousand years, has the text changed? No. And we know that because we have documents from a thousand years ago. So that, that shows us that the passage of time does not necessarily mean the text has to be changed. Now, there might be some small changes, but nothing major. So the other way we can check on the accuracy of things is by comparing different families of texts from different time periods and in different areas. So when one person makes a copy and it goes off to this part of the world, another person makes a copy and it goes off to that part of the world, and then they're copied from there and so on, people will make copying mistakes. I got news for you. Human beings are not perfect copying machines. We're not. We make mistakes. And God has allowed that. That bothers Christians, that God would allow little mistakes in his word. He did. And what's the alternative? Somebody's about to make a mistake and God zaps them dead. Or, or God supernaturally takes over and makes sure they write the correct word and it goes back to writing what they want. That God could do that. He's got the power, but he, he chose not to do that. I know that because occasionally when I'm copying a verse into PowerPoint, I make a mistake. Okay? I've had people come to me afterwards, you know, in your PowerPoint, you, you should have said world and you said word. And I'm like, oh, I have to go back to correct it. So God does allow that. And there's a reason for that. And we'll, we'll see what that is later on. But the neat thing is we can compare these different manuscripts and we can, in most cases, we can determine what the original reading was, even though we don't have it anymore. How does that work? Let's consider a New Testament text. So Paul has just written this wonderful letter to a church and we don't have that original manuscript anymore that's gone. But back then they had it, obviously, and several people said, wow, our church needs to read this too. And so they copied it. And let's say three people copied it. So now we have Paul's original letter and three copies. And they go off to different, their different churches, and they, their people say, wow, yeah, we need to get this over to this church over here. They're having a problem with that. So they make copies, and oh, and one of them, in one verse, a copying mistake is made. Instead of saying Jesus Christ, he accidentally wrote Christ Jesus. And by the way, the majority of mistakes are like that. They have no effect on the meaning. They have no effect on the meaning. So what does it, ma what, does it matter if Jesus Christ is the original or Christ Jesus? No, same person. Okay, But in any case, anyone who copies that letter will have that mistake in it. And it may be in another chain, another mistake is made, and so on. And then today, some of these copies remain. Not the original, not the copies, but the copies of the copies of the copies. We have some of those today. And we can look at the different manuscripts, and we can say, this one over in this part of the world says Jesus Christ. This one over in this part of the world says Jesus Christ. This one says Christ Jesus. Oh, but these two agree, and, and they go back... They, they, they converge earlier. So that, that's got to be the original reading. And so this is 
there are scholars who do this, this, this textual transmission analysis. It's sometimes called textual criticism, which sounds very negative, like you're criticizing the text. They're analyzing the text to see how it's been copied to figure out what the original reading is. And in most cases, there's no doubt at all what the original reading is. So it doesn't, it doesn't harm our confidence in God's word to know that God allowed some, some versions to make a mistake because other versions don't have that mistake. Different people will make different mistakes, and we can figure out what the original is by comparing them. And in a different verse, uh, maybe you have those same three copies, but in a different verse, a mistake is made maybe very early on. Even if one of the first copies of it has a mistake, we can still detect that. Because when it's copied and it's copied and so on, uh, we find that, no, these two very different families agree, and then there's this one out here that's the outlier. That's got to be the copying mistake. So, and by comparing different verses, we can actually... We can actually see how and, and where these were copied in different parts of the world. It's, it's wonderful. So if, if we didn't have that, if God had supernaturally taken over people to make sure they made no copying mistakes, we would not have any idea where these texts came from. And therefore, we couldn't have any confidence that they're original. Isn't that interesting? So that, there's a reason why God allowed that. It gives us confidence. We know what the original is because we can see how these different variations occurred in different families of texts. The other thing, of course, is we have very old texts. We have the, uh, the Masoretic text. The oldest complete copy we have of that is the Leningrad Codex, which goes back a 1,000 years. That's pretty good. We used to have, we still have portions of the Aleppo Codex. We used to, it used to go back to 930, but uh, a large portion of that was destroyed in a fire in 1947. So we still have 60% of the Aleppo Codex, but that goes back an additional 70 years. So that's pretty good. But we have other um, texts that we can look at, like the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It began with the translation of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It was commissioned by an Egyptian pharaoh, uh, Ptolemy II. He wanted to see what these Jews were reading, and uh, so he wanted a copy he could read. And at that point, the international language was Greek because of the Greek empire. And so he wanted it translated into Greek, and so he commissioned 72 scholars to translate the um, first five books of the Bible into Greek so that he could read them and have them in his library. And they did that, and because it was approximately 70 scholars, it's called the Septuagint. So that's the Latin word for 70, so 70 scholars. And it's abbreviated by LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. So if you see LXX, that's the Septuagint. So the Greek translation of the Torah, and then the rest of the Old Testament was translated about a century later. So there you have the, the Septuagint. Now the nice thing about Septuagint, uh, we have the Septuagint all the way back to the 300s AD. So it goes back even earlier than the Masoretic text. And you might think that would make it more accurate. But it's not a copy of the Bible, it's a translation. And it's not a perfect translation. There are mistakes in the Septuagint. We can identify those. But it's earlier. So how do you deal with that? Well, it's, it's, just another, it's just another point of confirmation because if the meaning, you can't compare the exact words because it's a different language, but if the meaning of a verse is the same in the Septuagint, the Masoretic text, you can be confident that even a thousand years earlier, the text has been reliably transmitted, you see. And in most cases, there's a very good agreement and there are a few differences. And then, of course, we have fragments going back even uh, to 150 BC. So fragments very close to when it was written. That's pretty neat. But it is a translation, and it's not a perfect one. The Septuagint would have been the um, Old Testament scriptures that the early church read from. And some people think that that's because the early church considered them more authoritative than the Masoretic text. That's not the case. They read it because they could read them. Most Christians couldn't read Hebrew, right? But most, you know, a lot of Christians were Gentiles. They, didn't, they had no idea how to read Hebrew. Even a lot of Jews couldn't read Hebrew by the time of Christ's ministry. So the early church used the Septuagint for the same reason most of you use an English Bible. It's what you can read. But we have other texts. We have the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritans had split off from the Israelites um, in the 700s BC and intermingled with the Assyrians, we think. And so by the time of Christ's earthly ministries, the Samaritans and Jews did not get along well. And you know about that from, from the, the good, parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. But we have some of their documents. They, now, they, they had a reduced canon, meaning they didn't consider all the Old Testament scriptures to be inspired. Only the five, first five books of the Bible did they accept to be inspired by God. 
And so they preserved those first five books in their own separate chain because they didn't interact with Jews. And we have some of those today that go back to 1100 AD. Now that's a little more recent than the Masoretic text, but the branching point is much earlier. The branching point's maybe 600 BC, something like that. And so bottom line is when the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic agree, and they usually do, that tells us that that text has been reliably copied for the last 2,600 years. Okay, so that's pretty good. And there is tremendous agreement. There's a few differences. Some of the ages of the patriarchs are a little different. But then another wonderful discovery happened in 1947. That's the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the nice thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they go back a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic text. And they are nearly identical to the Masoretic text. They're 95% identical to the Masoretic text, but a thousand years earlier. And so that tells us in the last 2,000 years, the Bible has been very reliably copied. God did allow little mistakes to creep in so we could track the different families, but more or less it's been very reliably copied. And by the way, that 95% identical, if you're wondering about the other 5%, it's mostly spelling changes. So there's not a lot of difference in the meaning. So that was a wonderful blessing. The Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're not just biblical literature, they contain all kinds of ancient literature. Only a small fraction of the Dead Sea Scrolls are scriptures, but a lot of them are Hebrew scriptures that are older than the Masoretic texts, and nearly identical with them. And I've heard those kind of claims before, but I wanted to, I wanted to check. I wanted to see it for myself. And, and since I specialize in Genesis, I thought, how does Genesis compare? And I want to show this to you. Because it's one thing to, to say, well, I heard this guy say there's a tremendous agreement. It's another thing to say, I know there's tremendous agreement because I've seen it. So I wanted to show this to you. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls on the right, and the Masoretic text on the left. Now, we already know that the Masoretic text will have the vowel pointings, and that's a recent addition. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't have the vowel pointings. But the consonants are virtually identical. And since most people can't read Hebrew, I had the computer highlight in red any differences. Okay? Yeah. It's a tremendous agreement. So that first, and by the way, there's different Dead Sea Scrolls. And a lot, not all of them are complete. The, the complete book of Genesis isn't, isn't found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but various fragments of it are. And so there's at least three scrolls that have Genesis 1-1, or portions of it, written on them. And those, the scroll is indicated in the yellow parentheses that's telling you which scroll it's found in. And so, for example, in that first scroll, what is it, 4Q2, um, it, it reads identical to the Masoretic text. It's identical. Now, you'll notice brackets in, around sections of it. Brackets indicate that that section is hard to read, and so there is some uncertainty. Because these are, not all of these are in pristine condition. Some of them are water damaged. Ink fades over time. These are 2,000 years old. And so the fact that we can still read them is quite miraculous. And the only reason is because they're in a cave in the middle of a desert. So that's, that helps their preservation quite a bit. There's a few scrolls that have even been fossilized, which is kind of interesting. They recently were able to take a scroll of Leviticus. You can't unroll it because it's a fossil. And they used x-rays to uh, reconstruct the text. Isn't that amazing? And, of course, it's nearly identical with the uh, Masoretic text of Leviticus. But anyway, um, so there is a difference, though. The first two scrolls are identical as far as we can tell. And it's interesting, too, because the first scroll, the first three words are certain. And then you see the brackets after that. So... In the beginning, God created is certain, and then after that, there's some uncertainty. Whereas in the next scroll, the second word is uncertain. But the rest of it's certain. So between those two scrolls, we know that a thousand years prior to the Masoretic, the, the wording was identical. Genesis 1-1 is not changed. You will see a difference in that third scroll for the first word. Instead of saying, uh, it says, it which is to say it's exactly the same word, it's just spelled differently. It's missing an aleph. Whether that's a misspelling or an alternate spelling, I don't know. They didn't probably have easy access to dictionaries, so, so who knows. But in any case, there's no difference in the content. Verses 2, 3, 4, absolutely identical. We get the next difference at verse 5 in scroll 4Q2, but it's a punctuation difference. The words are identical. It's just the ending of the sentence there. There's a paragraph marker on the Masoretic text that's missing on the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they do have brackets. Open brackets indicate there's something there, but we can't read it. So it could have been there in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. 
The first word difference we find in verse 5, but it's, when a it's in a different scroll. Right there. That's the word yomam as opposed to yom. So it's, it's where, um, let's see if I can. So, yeah, so Genesis 1, 5. Elohim and God called the light day, and then in the dead in one Dead Sea Scroll, it's and God called the light instead of day, it's daylight or day daytime. It's a different word for day. Okay, so does that have a lot of does that change the meaning? Not really. It doesn't matter too much. But I'm a nerd, so I want to know which one's the original, right? I want to know is God saying day or daytime? And um, fortunately, we have another Dead Sea Scroll that says day, but it's in brackets, so it's uncertain. But we have a tiebreaker. Remember the Samaritan Pentateuch? We have that. Let's go to the Samaritan Pentateuch, and it says day. It says yom. So that is the original reading, okay? So in that neat? We have three different families of texts, you see, and if there's a difference, then, you know, then we have um, the, the, the testimony of two witnesses to tell us which is the original. So, and the verse six is identical and so on. So, Pretty neat. So that, that just shows you some of the differences. and They're very minor, as you can see. So the Old Testament text has been very meticulously copied. We know that for 2,000 years. We know that because we have documents that old. So two criteria give us confidence that our current texts are reliable copies of the original autographs. One is if you have a large number of ancient manuscripts, that allows you to track the transmission. Because then you can build up and you can say, oh, this is the Byzantine family and this is the Alexandrian family and so on. There's certain families of texts that have been copied from a common source. And it allows you to figure that out. The more manuscripts you have, the better. You can figure that out. And then, of course, if you have older manuscripts, that helps. And we do have very old manuscripts. So we've already looked at that with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, even though it goes back to 2000 BC, we have documents that go back to... Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you know, 100 B.C., something like that. And so for the last 2,000 years, it hasn't changed substantially, and so we have confidence that in the previous 2,000 years, it hasn't changed substantially. Substantially. What about the New Testament? New Testament's written in the first century, and we have, in our possession today, complete New Testament manuscripts by the fourth century. So mid-300s, you can get the entire New Testament together, bound together, and uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. So within a few hundred years. But if you want to just look at fragments of the New Testament, those go back to the second century. Less than 100 years after the text was written, we still have some copies. Pretty neat. Let me show you one of these. This is called P52. This is a small um, fragment of text. It's no bigger than a credit card. It's written on the front and the back. We flipped it over for you so you can see both sides. And that is sections of John chapter 18. Verses 31 through 33 on the front and 37 through 38 on the back. Isn't that neat? You say, well, that's a very small section of John. Yes, it is. But my point is, it's identical with copies of John that are a thousand years later. Okay? And so that tells us that, uh, you know, anyone who claims, well, that, you know, the Bible's been copied so many times, we don't know what the original said. Well, I'm sorry, but we have, we have at least sections of, the, of uh, copies that are within 100 years after the author wrote it, maybe within 50 years after the author wrote it. So pretty impressive. And then by the 300s, mid-300s, you have the complete New Testament Bible contained in what are called Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. This is Codex Vaticanus, and it's abbreviated by the capital letter B. It goes back to the mid-300s AD. It also includes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well. So it's the complete Bible by the 300s. It's all capital letters in Greek, and there's no spaces. So even if you can read Greek, it's a little hard to read. But that's the way they did it originally. And here's Codex Sinaiticus, same way. Okay, and so it, bottom line, when we compare those two, and they're identical, that tells you that's the original reading. If they disagree, then we have to do a little more homework on it. But for the most part, they agree. What about the number of manuscripts that we find? Well, just to compare this with other ancient documents, uh, Tacitus, we have 33 manuscripts of his uh, historical works, dated around 70 A.D., that's when he wrote it. And uh, 33, that's not, that doesn't mean 33 copies, complete copies, it means 33. Some of those could be complete copies, others could be fragments. Could be just one page, could be a section of a page, that counts as one. And so, 
we, we build up Plato. We have about 210. Now, if you, if you wanted to say, well, how, how, how many copies do we have complete works? Maybe 10. But if you want to include fragments, pieces of Plato, 210. At that point, you can start to say, oh, yeah, there's certain families we think that those are falling into. You can start to do some textual criticism with that many copies. It's pretty good. And you can say, okay, these are in agreement, but there's a difference here, so there's some uncertainty there. Okay. One of the most popular works of the ancient world was the Iliad by Homer, the Greek, not the Simpson. And uh, 1,900 copies, pretty good. You can really start to do, and again, that's not necessarily the entire manuscript. It could be a page or fragment. That's, that counts as one. And uh, at that point, you can start to do textual criticism and see what agrees and what disagrees. And uh, scholars are confident that 95% of what we have of the Iliad today is the original. And there's 5% where there's some uncertainty as to which one is the original. So that's what you can do with 1,900 copies. You can get 95% confidence. Pretty good. So how does the Bible compare to this? Well, the Old Testament, let's start with the Old Testament. It would be off the chart. We'll have to reduce the scale a little bit because we have around 11,000 copies of the Old Testament. Not the complete Old Testament, but fragments count, okay? And, and these numbers will differ a little bit depending on who you ask. I tried to be pretty conservative here, but that's, that's amazing. That blows away anything in the secular world in terms of the number of ancient manuscripts we have. There is something very different about this book. You can't deny that. The secularists can't deny that. There's the data. We have so many more copies of it. That's interesting. And with 11,000 copies, you can do all kinds of textual criticism. You can take a look at it and see the agreement. What about the New Testament? The New Testament written in Greek because that was the international language of the day. So it's, uh, we have 5,800 copies, not complete copies, but manuscripts of the New Testament. And again, some of those are just fragments, like P52 is one of those. It's that little fragment of the book of John. Some of them are complete, the entire New Testament, like uh, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus. But very shortly after the Bible was written, within a few centuries, the language of the day changed from Greek to Latin. And so the Bible very early on was translated into Latin. And if we include Latin copies, we have 10,000 ancient Latin copies of the Bible. Latin translations. Pretty neat. Pretty amazing. And then other languages, Coptic and so on, 9,300. And so if you add those up, so if you include the New Testament Greek and translations, the number of ancient copies we have of the New Testament would be something like 25,000. And that, again, that blows away anything in the secular world. Nothing else comes close to that. How is it that this little group of Jews was able to write a book that persisted and had more manuscripts than anything else in history. Could it be because it's inspired by God? I will admit this doesn't automatically prove it's inspired by God, but it's certainly, it's certainly consistent with it. It ought to make an atheist scratch his head and go, there's something different about this book. There's something different about it. But we do have differences, especially with the New Testament, because the New Testament was freely transmitted, right? With the Old Testament, the priests primarily were ensuring the accuracy of that. The Masoretes were very explicit in its copying. The New Testament was copied freely under difficult circumstances because there was a time when it was illegal to be a Christian. And so you're copying the Bible. You're copying it under candlelight at night. It's easy to make a mistake. And people did. People made copying mistakes. So I want to take a look at some of those. So there are thousands of variants in the New Testament. You need to understand that. It bothers some Christians that God allowed copying mistakes in, but he did. But he, but he still, there's always at least one copy that has the original reading. That's the, that's the point, because different people make different mistakes. The thing you need to understand about these readings, the, the two questions you need to ask. One, how many of them are meaningful? Because like I said earlier, most of the copying mistakes that people made, they'll invert a word or duplicate a sentence. It doesn't change the meaning. If somebody says Christ Jesus and the, the original was Jesus Christ, that has no effect on the meaning of the passage, right? And none of these affect any major Christian doctrine or anything like that. You need to understand that. Second, how many are viable? Viable means there's a chance it could be original because there are some mistakes that we know are not the original because they're just way too stupid to be the original. For example, you know how your Bible probably has, uh, mine does, it's got two columns, one there and one there, right? And you're supposed to read down the one column and then the next one. 
we have, there is an ancient manuscript where somebody, maybe somebody who couldn't read Greek and he's just copying the, the letters. He just went straight across from one column to the next. And since his margins were different, it's all screwed up in the new version. We still have that today. That's not the original. We know that, right? Or if a mistake creeps in in the year 900, and before that, no manuscripts had it, we know that that's not viable. It's recent, okay? So viable would have to, in order to be viable, it would have to be a very ancient, very ancient copy. It would have to be found in either Sinaiticus or Vaticanus, for example. Um, if, it's, if it's not, if it's a recent one, then it's not viable. And so I want to show you some of these. Because there, there's a lot of misconceptions. A lot of there's some Christians who say, well, you know, this version of the Bible is translated from these corrupt, corrupt texts. No, there's no, there's no corrupt texts. Okay, it's innocent mistakes that people are making, and I'll show you how they made them. Because sometimes people will say, well, yeah, no, these these groups here are people that copied the Bible. They were trying to reduce or eliminate the divinity of Jesus, and so that's why they removed certain verses. No, every Ancient manuscript declares the divinity of Jesus. Hebrews 1.8, where God says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Every ancient copy, I checked, because I have software that allows me to do that. Every ancient copy has that. So my point is, if people were trying to suppress the divinity of Jesus, they did a terrible job, because every Bible has that. Okay, These are innocent mistakes. Let me show you one. Mark chapter 9 has a variant, a textual variant. In uh, verse, uh, well, let's start with verse 43. Jesus is speaking. He says, and if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 44 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then again in verse 46, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now you'll notice, and this is the uh, New American Standard 77 translation, you'll notice that there are brackets around verse 44 and verse 46. Brackets indicate that there is that there are some manuscripts that have that, and there are other manuscripts that don't have that. Okay, and that is a fact. And so you need to decide if that was the original and it's been lost in some versions, or if the original didn't have it and it's been added in some versions. Some people automatically assume that if it's there, it was original, and then some versions have removed it. But you can't, there's no logical basis for assuming that. We need to apply some logic here. But you'll notice also there's a footnote there, footnote 27. That's going to give me some additional information. So let's read the footnote. Verses 44 and 46, which are identical with verse 48, are not found in the best ancient manuscripts. And so that footnote is informing you that the oldest manuscripts that we have, the most ancient ones, do not have that little phrase, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched in verses 44 and 46. Now keep in mind the verse numbers are recent. Verse numbers were added in uh, 1552. Before that, no Bible had verse numbers. Okay, so you can't, verse numbers are not inspired. Those are added later. So the original text went apparently from what is today verse 43 right to verse 45. At least the most ancient, ancient manuscripts uh, say that. And you can see they're giving you their opinion the best ancient manuscripts. So they're giving you their opinion that the original uh, reading of Mark didn't have those two uh, verses there. Now, if, for example, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, they do not have those. It's not there. And those are those very old um, versions of the New Testament. Now, if we read on, verse 47, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with uh, one eye, then having two eyes to be cast into hell. And verse 48 says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what do you not see in verse 48? No brackets. Interesting. So what that tells us is that all the ancient manuscripts do have that verse there. So did Jesus say, where the worm does not die and their fire is not quenched? Yes, there's no doubt. He did say that. The, the only issue is that he say it once or multiple times. Is that going to affect your theology? No, because Jesus did say it. Okay. So why then does it appear in some ancient manuscripts? Well, it would be very easy to make this mistake, very easy to accidentally add that in. Because remember, they don't have verse numbers in the original. They're copying perhaps by candlelight. And you could imagine, let's say they're copying verse uh, 40, 45. And look at the last 
one, two, three, four, five. Last five words in verse 45, to be cast into hell. Look at the last four words or last five words of verse 47, to be cast into hell. See, if you're copying verse 45 and you're right, to be cast into hell, and you look back to the original, it would be very easy to go, because there's no verse numbers to look down. You're looking for to be cast into hell, and you, and you go down to verse 47, to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. You see how easy it would be to do that? So apparently that's what happened at some point, because the oldest manuscripts don't have the extra of, um, of Jesus saying it three times instead of just saying it once. So that's, that's one possibility. And you don't have to agree with me. The point is, um, if you have a modern Bible, it will give you that information. It will tell you here's, there's some ambiguity here. There's some manuscripts that have this and some that don't. And you can do your own homework. And you don't have to come to the same conclusion as the scholars. But it's, the information has been provided for you. Mark 10, 6 through 8. Jesus says in verse 7, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting from uh, Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus did believe in Genesis. He believed it was real history, as do I. And so you'll notice there's a footnote there, footnote 28. If we read that footnote, it says, Some manuscripts add, and shall cleave to his wife. So there's some manuscripts where Jesus says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife. And they, since, they're in the, since they didn't include that, they're pretty confident that the original did not have that. But they're giving you the information in case you disagree. Some manuscripts add that, and she'll cleave to his wife. Does it affect your theology? No, because Genesis does say that, and she'll cleave to his wife, or and be joined to his wife. And if you read the, the parallel account in Matthew, in Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus does say, and be joined to his wife. So Jesus did say that. It's just a question of whether or not Mark recorded Jesus saying that. Because different gospel authors recorded different things, right? They didn't, that's, and, and we can get a more enriched picture of the life of Christ by comparing the four gospels. So Jesus did say it. It's just the, the evidence would seem to be that Mark didn't originally record that. It, but somebody, maybe they had memorized that verse, and when they're copying it, they just put that right in. It'd be easy to do. It'd be easy to do. Or it could be a marginal gloss. That's where some people will write in the margins. Uh, when, when people were copying the Bible in ancient times, they would sometimes write in the margins helpful information. You know, see parallel account in Matthew. Very helpful. Okay? Or they might have just, you know, cleaved to his father and mother and cleaved to his wife because they knew that Genesis says that, so they'd put it in the margin. But sometimes when people were copying the Bible and they realized, oh, I skipped a sentence. So they'd write the sentence of the text in the margins. So the margins of an ancient Bible can contain either comments on Scripture or Scripture that they had forgotten. So the next person who gets this, he doesn't know. He looks at the margin. Is that a comment or is it the text of Scripture? And so it's very easy for them to think, well, that, that flows, and that's what Matthew 19 says, so they just copy it right into the text. That's a marginal gloss. We know that happens because we've seen these marginal notes that eventually get moved into the text. And sometimes they would indicate, they would put a symbol indicating we're not sure if this is the original reading or not. They couldn't easily check. You want to go to the library and check? That might be a three-day ride. And you don't, have, you don't have the resources to be able to spend that amount of time doing it. So anyway, uh, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained him. If you have a King James Bible or a Geneva Bible, one of the older translations, it will say the only begotten Son. But as far as we can tell, the only begotten God is the original reading. That's what, uh, so it's, it's indicating the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God. And people will say, was the King James trying to suppress the divinity of Jesus by changing God to Son? No. No. It's just you could imagine the, the, the manuscripts they're translating from say Son. Some of the more recent manuscripts do say that. The oldest ones don't. All the early manuscripts say God, the only begotten God. Uh, P66, which is a very early copy of John, it's mid-2nd century, dating to around 150 A.D. It says the only begotten God. Uh, P P75, which is late 2nd century, early 3rd century, it says God. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, God. That's the original reading. But uh, you could imagine somebody copying that. Only begotten, if they're tired and they've been copying for two hours, only begotten, it'd be easy to write son. Because Jesus is the only begotten son as well, and other scriptures say that. So it's, it's only begotten God sounds weird, doesn't it? But that's what John wrote. 
So another example is John 5, 3 through 4. It's always funny to ask someone with an NIV, please read John chapter 5, verse 4, because it's not there in the NIV. And people say, well, they've subtracted that. Well, more likely somebody added it at some point. And this appears to be a marginal gloss because all the early copies of John, all of them, do not have that little section indicated in yellow there. This is the account of the pool of Bethesda where Jesus uh, heals the, the lame man. Uh, there was, if you read the little section in yellow, there was this little game that God used to play where he'd send an angel down to stir up the water and the first one in who jumps in gets healed. And I always thought that was weird and I've come to learn that none of the early copies of John have that. Uh, somebody may have written that in the comment as an explanation for why these people were lying around the pool. Perhaps that was a common legend at the time. And so he writes that in the margins, and then the next person inserts it in. Uh, but we know it's not original because no Greek Bible had that until, I think it's the 9th century. Let me see if I have it in my notes. Yeah, the 9th century. Early Greek manuscripts up till the 9th century lacked that verse. So for the first 800 years of church history, nobody had read that in their Greek Bible. It got inserted into the Latin Vulgate at one point and then back translated into the Greek. So it's, it appears to be not original. Again, you can disagree with me, but you have the information there. You have the brackets, and so you can check for yourselves, and you can go back and take a look at the manuscript evidence for yourself. I want to bring up three very significant variants, because I, I think you should know about them, because the critics will bring them up, and it would be helpful for you to know about these. One is the Kama Johannium. This is found in 1 John 5, 7 in older Bibles, like the Geneva Bible or the King James where it'll say there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's a nice little summary of the Trinity, but John didn't write it. Okay, it's not, it's not in any um, of the copies of, of 1 John up until the 1500s. For the first 1,500 years of church history, nobody had read that in their Greek Bible. It was, it's not there. And then it, it, it appears to have gone into the Latin at some point as a marginal gloss. Somebody was explaining because the, the, the verse, verse 8 does mention that there are three that bear witness on earth. And, and then he's saying, well, there are three that bear witness in heaven too. So it seems to be a marginal gloss. It's not original. And most modern Bibles don't even bother to put it in because we're, we're just very certain that that's not in the original. But um, the other, another two that I want to mention, because most Bibles will include these, but they'll put brackets around them, the Pericope Adultery and the Longer Ending of Mark. And these are the longest variants that we have in the New Testament. They're both 12 verses long, which is enormous, okay? And so, c compared to most variants. So, the Pericope Adultery, the woman caught in adultery. Remember that story? And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, the oldest, all the oldest copies of John don't have that. It's not there. It's not in uh, P66, that early 150 AD copy of John. It's not there. It's not in uh, P75, uh, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. It's not in Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. It starts appearing in the 4th or 5th century in some documents, but not in others. And so, uh, and by the way, in some, in some cases, it'll, they'll add it in, but it'll be in a different portion of John. Some, some will put that story at the end of John. Uh, some, sometimes it appears in um, Luke's Gospel in chapter 21, verse 38. So they'll, they'll move it to a different Gospel even, because it's such a good story. We've got to get it in there somewhere. But um, it appears not to have been original, and I know that bothers people because there's nothing wrong with the story. There's nothing anti-biblical about it, but it just, John, we're pretty confident John didn't write that. Again, you can disagree, but at least, it's, at least a modern Bible is going to provide you with that information so you can check for yourself, and that's, that's very good. And then the most disputed is the longer ending of Mark. Uh, the oldest copies of Mark that we have end at verse 8, and they end on a cliffhanger because Jesus has risen, but then you don't see the the results of that. You don't see him interacting with the disciples or anything like that. And so uh, perhaps somebody at the end of Mark wrote their comments. Oh, and by the way, you know, because I, I witnessed what happened afterwards and here's what happened. Uh, maybe. And maybe that got copied in. But there are different versions of the ending of Mark. Mo again, the most ancient ones end at verse 8. There are some that have some of those verses but lack others. There's a medium ending and then there's the long ending. There's the long ending but some that that omit the last paragraph of verse 20. There's some that, in, that omit 9 through 20, but include the last paragraph of 20 right after verse 8. So there's several different endings of Mark. This is the most contentious in terms of variance uh, passage in the New Testament. And I mention that to you because I want you to have confidence 
because I want you to have confidence in the Bible, because something that you should do at some point, maybe you can do it now if you have a physical Bible, just turn to a random page in the New Testament, and, you know, it doesn't really matter where, and look at all the places that don't have any brackets, which is the vast majority of them. If they don't have any brackets, we are basically 100% confident that is the original reading. And no ancient work has that level of certainty. And by the way, even these disputed passages, you need to understand, one of those is the original reading, right? The original reading has been preserved. It's just some variations of it have also been preserved. So, for, and basically, if, if we want to talk about, because we talked about how many of these variants are viable and meaningful, uh, about 0.2%. One estimate is 0.2%. So what that means is, it doesn't mean that the Bible's less than 100% certain. It's all certain. It's just that for 99.8% of the text of your Bible, you don't have to do any homework at all. It's just there, and that's the way it was written. And for 0.2%, you have to make a choice between this or this. One of these two will be the original. So how much of the Bible do we have today? 100%. In fact, we have 100.2%. Right? You can think about it as a puzzle... A 100-piece puzzle where you have 105 pieces. The entire puzzle's there, but there's a few where you're not sure if this piece or this piece, and you're going to have to do your homework, okay? So that's, that's the way the Bible has been preserved. God has preserved his word. We have God's word here, and for the most part, we don't have to, we can just brainlessly look at it, and that's, that's the original reading, but there's a small portion where we have to go back and do our homework. And if you have a modern Bible, it'll give you that, that textual information, so, which I appreciate, because then I can go back and look at it. So, and God did it that way for a reason. It's so we could check the manuscripts and see the different families and have confidence they're original. If God had not allowed any mistakes at all, we would have no way of tracking the families, because they didn't label, this is the Byzantine family, this is the Alexandrian family. They didn't do that. We only know which family it is by the copying mistakes that were added, the variants. So it's interesting because, um, you know, Bart Ehrman is an expert on critical text. Information like I presented today, he knows all of that. And he is an apostate. He walked away from the church years ago because God didn't preserve the word in the way that he preferred. And he, he's admitted that. He said, well, if, you know, if God really wrote this, he would, have he would have allowed no copying mistakes in it. Now, that's a ridiculous argument. I don't know why God did something, therefore God didn't do it. I don't know why Joe puts ketchup on his eggs, therefore Joe doesn't exist. <laughs> Not logical. Not logical. But God did preserve his word, and he did it in a way that's superior to the way that many people would assume. So I hope that's been a blessing to you. And uh, just remember, the vast majority of verses in the New Testament have no variants that are both meaningful and viable. And again, turn to a random page in your Bible, look at all the places that have no footnotes or no brackets. And that's the 99.8% of your Bible, something like that. No other work of antiquity comes close to that. The Bible really is the Word of God and it is unique in the ancient world. So check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. We've got some articles on this. Um, check out the resources we have too. Take advantage of this while you're here because you don't have to pay shipping. So uh, uh, understanding Genesis, which is uh, the importance of the literal history of Genesis, the book that goes along with that, the ultimate proof of creation, giving you a bulletproof argument for biblical creation, and the DVD that goes along with that, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, and how to enjoy the night sky from a Christian perspective. That's a fun resource. Taking Back Astronomy, how to um, refute the Big Bang in the billions of years, and Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason answers over 400 alleged Bible contradictions. You've heard people say this verse contradicts that one. It doesn't, I checked. Uh, there's the answer. Uh, introduction to Logic, uh, How to Use Your Mind to the Glory of God. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We have a teacher's guide, too, if you want to use that for your homeschool curriculum or whatever. Uh, Get Logical, the DVD series where I went through that book with my home church. We recorded them, uh, 10 Sunday School lessons on logic and, and how logic stems from the mind of God. Uh, Dinosaurs in the Bible, which I presented here yesterday, if you were able to take a look at that, we have that on DVD. Secret Code of Creation, God has built beauty into an aspect of creation most people never think about, and it's really cool. Now we have a book that goes along with that as well. And we do have, just for, just for today, just for this morning, um, book packs. 
20% discounted. You can get the best of our books for 20% discount. Our video pack, 20% of our DVDs for a 20% discount. Um, the best of our DVDs for 20% discount. And our library pack, kind of the best of everything for 30% discount. Only do these at conferences. We have some children's resources as well, which I'd encourage you to get. Very well done. Answers books for kids, wonderfully done. Do sign up for our free monthly newsletter. How many of you already signed up for the newsletter? Okay. Now, that's okay. Now, I've been here before. So the rest of you need to repent of that sin, <laughs> sign up for the newsletter, and check us out on the web at biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the certainty of your word and for giving us all the tools that we have today that we can have confidence that your word has been accurately transmitted and copied to us. And we thank you for the availability of your word, something that is almost unique in our time where we can all have a copy of your word and how we should live and how, how we can live in a way that's pleasing to you and how we can have eternal life by repenting and trusting in you. And we pray that this information will be encouraging to people and uh, bless their hearts. And we ask you to bless this day.